0: i planning on picking up our exposition, Matthew 23. In fact, half of my sermon is already written on Matthew chapter 23. But it came about Thursday night or Friday, really, really Friday morning, that I said, I need to change. And there's something more pressing that I need to preach on this morning. And really it came about, in my mind, um, last Sunday evening. It's our habit. We have uh, some dear Christian friends or neighbors and we had them over to our house for kind of our Christmas celebration. It was time just to get together and sit around and talk and chat. And at one point, my neighbor said to me, Hey, have you heard about the tsunami that took place in the Far East? Now, how, how many of you have ever heard before of a tsunami before this week? Okay. To me, that was like a totally new word. I had never heard of a tsunami before. So he's talking about this tsunami that occurred. I had no idea what he was talking about. I didn't know whether it was a celebration, whether what, and he kind of mentioned something about a <clears throat> earthquake in the ocean. I'm thinking, okay, there's an earthquake in the ocean. So, so what? And he told me about, you know, how it kind of came and flooded some things. I'm like, okay, it didn't really register much with me at all. And we kind of went on. And then when I picked up my paper on Monday morning, I picked up the Rockford Register Star, and then then tsunami came to mind to understand really what that was—the earthquake and the tidal wave and the disaster that came out came across you know, Southeast Asia, killing many and causing great damage. And I watched week by week as the vast numbers of those people who died in the tragedy, right? the, the estimates were increasing and increasing. On Monday, they said that the tsunami had killed 23,000 people. And by Tuesday, the count was up to 56,000 people. And by Wednesday, it was 80,000 people, they're estimating, By Thursday, the estimates were up to 120,000. By Friday, it was 135,000. And yesterday, it was approaching 150,000 people. And I guess in my mind, it just increased and increased and increased in my mind of the great disaster that took place in our world. Excuse me. Now, in one sense for us, life goes on. I mean, after all, the disaster is halfway across the world. We see the pictures in the news. We read the stories in the paper. We can do our part. We can spend, send some financial relief. We can pray. But in all of this, I'm not sure about you, but to me it seems very surreal. It's so far around the world. But I guarantee you, if that would strike America's soil, it would be near and dear to our hearts. I mean, there were about 2,800 people that died in the attack on America when the trade towers fell. This disaster is 50 times bigger. And think about how America was stirred. And, and certainly there are, are differences there between you know, wicked terrorists hitting our own, you know, trying to cause devastation. Yet God is no less sovereign. Don't you think in your mind that the, the devastation ought to rise when God, the holy God, majestic, good, righteous God... Does a disaster 50 times worse than what struck us? The the size of this disaster is huge. I don't quote Kofi Annan very often. I'll quote him today. He said it was an unprecedented global catastrophe. Now, that's not true, okay? Maybe that's why I don't quote him so much. Because we know the flood was the biggest global catastrophe. But the point is that this is like a huge catastrophe. President Bush said the carnage of a scale on this is of a scale that defies comprehension. A hundred and fifty thousand people. I read of one reporter flying on a helicopter delivering supplies to Indonesia, I think. He said, we passed town after town after town that looked like it had been literally flattened by an atomic bomb. Now, we may have escaped this particular disaster being in America this week, but listen, our life is so uncertain that there is no guarantee that we will escape disaster next week. Perhaps some new disease will strike across America. Perhaps years of drought will come. Famine in the land. Maybe some other terrorist attack will come. I don't know. It's left up to your imagination. But to use the words of Jonathan Edwards, it is only the mere pleasure of God that withholds the next disaster from us. And so this morning, I would like to think, for us to think about our lives. My message this morning, you see it in your bulletin there, in the bulletin insert, is entitled, Lessons from a Tsunami. Now there are certainly lessons that we can learn. There are many lessons that we can learn. We can learn about the awesome power of God. I mean, the amazing destruction caused by the water, right? which was caused by God. And yet, the Scriptures declare that as mighty and powerful as the water is, Psalm 93, verse 4, more than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. In other words, God is far stronger than the mighty breakers of the sea, even those that kill 150,000 people. In the span of a few hours. Don't think for a moment that God couldn't have stopped it. He could have easily. That's what we read in Psalm 104, right? At thy rebuke, the wind stopped. He couldn't stop it all. Or we could learn about what awaits the earth. To be sure, a flood that kills 150,000 people is a great disaster, and yet the Lord promised even a greater disaster in years to come. <clears throat> We read in our family through Revelation this past week when the trumpets of judgment were blown. Listen to what John saw. He said, I saw something like a great mountain burning with fire thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died and a third of the ships were destroyed. I mean, we're talking a third of the earth. Potentially two billion people. We could learn of how this foreshadows what is to come. We could learn of the incredible mercy of God. And though many people died, listen, it's the sovereign mercy of God that more didn't die. I mean, to be sure, a hundred thousand is a lot. But if you're at all like me, you've read story after story of those who had very close brushes with death. And in every instance, when a life was saved, it was the mercy of God. Second Peter tells us that the present heavens and Earth are being kept by His word, kept for that future day of judgment. But now it's His mercy that holds the world together. It's by the word of God His ultimate judgment isn't be, is being withheld upon the earth right now. It's his mercy that doesn't unleash that all right now. We can learn. The power of God, what awaits the earth, the mercy of God. But this morning I'd like to focus our attention on two lessons. Two of the, the many lessons that we could learn. And both these come from the same verse. I invite you to open your Bible to Job chapter 14. Perhaps you're there, perhaps you're not there. They come. Both these lessons really come from this same verse. And my message this morning will be different. It's going to be real topical this morning by nature of the disaster. But we need to press these things in our heart. And, and this is an appropriate message for us on this New Year's Day. This first Sunday after the New Year, I know that my custom has always been to really challenge you all as a congregation, to really think about your life in your years to come in the next year to come and say, am I going to really pursue God this year? Is this year going to be different than it was in 2004? And this verse would be great to reflect our minds upon that. I need to warn you, this is a sober message this morning. This is a message of disaster this morning. <clears throat> Job says, man... Who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil, short-lived and full of turmoil. I like the way the English standard version does it. It says man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. There's this quantity that man has that's just a little little bit, and there's this quantity that man has that is a lot. And the quantity he has a few of is days upon the earth. And the quantity that he has a lot of is trouble. That's what the Bible declares. It's what we can learn from this tsunami. I want to take my outline from this. Life is few of days and life is full of trouble. You know, Jacob the patriarch knew this. When Jacob brought his family to Egypt, he had an opportunity to stand before Pharaoh and Pharaoh asked him, he said, How old are you, Jacob? And listen to what he said. Jacob said, Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life. Few of days and full of trouble. Moses knew this. In Psalm 90, he said, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due strength, 80. And yet their pride is labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. You might think 70, 80 years is a long time. But the psalm starts, O oh, oh Thou, O Lord, You are from everlasting to everlasting. We're only like 70 years. We have few days. And our days are full of labor and sorrow, full of trouble. Solomon knew this. Ecclesiastes 6 verse 12: "In despair, Solomon cried out, "Who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during his few years of this futile life? Our days are few. Our troubles are full. Do you know this? Do you know what Job knew? Do you know what Jacob knew? Do you know what Moses knew? Do you know what Solomon knew? Or do you think that your life here upon earth is full of many days? And that your life here upon the earth will be full of happy days? Church family, you need to know that eternity will soon come upon us all. And until then, our lives will experience difficulty and suffering. It's what God has ordained for us. Let's look at our first lesson. Life is few of days. I want you to turn over to James chapter 4. We're going to camp here for this point. Life is few of days. It's really a great passage that speaks about how few our days really are. James chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 13 through 15. James writes this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. This passage, James is addressing... Those who are living life apart from the sovereign realization that God is there. Apart from the sovereignty of God in their lives. James isn't prohibiting planning. He's not saying don't plan your life for the next year. He's not saying don't think about tomorrow. But he's saying in your plans, submit them to the sovereign will and decree of God. Don't have the arrogance of presuming that tomorrow will be there apart from God's will. But always, he said, right, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do that. As Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Right? There it is. Planning our way, but realizing that it's the Lord who's going to direct our steps. There were more than 100,000 people who woke up the day after Christmas... Thinking that their day would simply race through, just as every other day had. And yet it ended in a moment. They weren't expecting it to end, they were expecting to go about their day. But the Lord had another plan for their life. The Lord had decreed that on that day they were going to breathe their last. And they did. And that's what James says. He says here in verse 14 You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow, you're just a vapor. It appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Right? Give it a week or so and go outside and go, <sighs> and look at the vapor that proceeds from your mouth and is gone in a second. That's your life. We are few of days. Perhaps today when you're driving home from church and you, you stop at a stoplight and there's a car in front of you, look at the exhaust pipe. It's putting forth a vapor and you can see it just go for a little bit and then it's gone. That is our life. We are few of days. The Scripture speaks much about this. Let me just give a few for you. Psalm 39, verse 5. The psalmist says, You've made my days as hand breadths." That's, that's the length of a hand. Just, just right there. Just the distance from here to here. What is that, kids? How far is that distance? How far is that? A couple inches? Four inches? That's our life. Our life is a hand breath. It Says, my lifetime, is this nothing in your sight? Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. You want to find the best man? <sighs> He's done. He's a breath. Over. I was thinking about this this week. You know, there is nobody alive, I don't think, maybe with rare exception, who remember the 1800s nobody oh we can read about it right but there's not a soul that remembers the 1800s right those that are alive you know 110 years old were like five years old back then maybe they remember okay? but it's the rare exception and soon it would be that no one remembers the 1900s and soon it would be that no one remembers the 2000s in which we live because we'll all be gone Psalm 102, verse 11 says, My days were like a lengthened shadow, and I wither away like the grass. If you kids are anything like me, I remember when I was small, I used to be out in the driveway, you're trying to chase my shadow and trying to move my hand really fast and see if I get it. And the shadow is so darting and so flickering and so fast, it was gone like that. And the psalmist says, the Bible says that's our life. We wither like grass. I remember as a child... Maybe you kids have done this before, sitting outside on the lawn, you know, with my friends, and just kind of sitting there talking and pulling the grass, just up and out like this. Right? You ever done that, kids? Just kind of sit and you pull your grass, you just it's done. It's gonna wither up, die, turn brown, fall into the ground. That's our life. It's like grass. Isaiah 40, 6 through 8. All flesh is like grass, all its loveliness, like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it, and surely the people are grass. You look outside. You can look outside. There's some grass out there. It fades. When the cold winter winds come upon it, it fades. It's gone. We are like grass. Husbands, you bring flowers home to your wives. Right? Any of you do that? I don't, nearly. (laughs) I don't. I should. I don't. I have before, okay? (laughs) You bring a flower home. You put it in a vase. In a week, it fades and you throw it away. We are flowers. Psalm 103, 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass, a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind passes over, it's no more. Its place acknowledges it no longer. You know what? It may just be that the breath of the Lord will blow upon your life this week. It may just be that you won't gather with us next Sunday morning. Now, I, I'm not trying to be prophetic here, okay? And I hope that I'm wrong. I'm not saying that any of you are not going to be here this week, this next week. But it could just happen. You know, I spoke with my brother-in-law this week. And um, I asked him about the details of the story. He said uh, it was about 12 years ago. He was involved in a Bible study with he and his wife. And uh, it was a couple's Bible study, you know, a little bit like our flocks. And uh, they met together. He said he couldn't remember. It was every week or every other week, every Friday. They got together. And they were studying through James. And they got to this passage... Here in chapter 4, verse 13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there, engage in business, make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. As they're going through that, I'm sure they went to many of the same verses I just brought you to. right? They talk about our... Our life is short and we have few of days and look at the grass and maybe someone in that Bible study even pulled out some grass or pulled out, you know, some things that are just fading away. Maybe they breathed and just said that's what our life is. And I'm sure that everybody there was saying, yep, yep, that's our life, that's our life, that's our life. You know, and maybe even the same warning came out, you know, we could die tomorrow. Like, yep, yep, they agree with that. And that week, my brother-in-law's wife got in a major car accident spent some days in the hospital, finally passed away, died. He's my brother-in-law because he married my sister a little over a year later. But they read this passage and it came to pass. So don't think it won't or couldn't come to pass in our congregation as well. The Lord provided an object lesson, an illustration, just to say, you know, everything that you said you believe. Listen, it's true, our life is a vapor. So I was talking to my brother-in-law and I said, hey, life is a vapor. And he said how true it is. And I think that there's a sense where he gets it far more than I do. Because he's lived it. And there's a sense where we all don't get it. Where we can say, yep, our life is short, our life is short. But we don't get it. May the news of 150,000 people drowning on a day which they least expected it teach us the most valuable lesson that we can have. Life is short. Our days are few. My admonition comes from Psalm 90, verse 12. Moses wrote in that psalm, Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That's the lesson we need to learn from this first point. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. He's not saying, teach us to number our years, right? Okay, I've got a few years. Teach us to number our days. He's talking about tomorrow, in the next day. We need to number our days because they are few and they are small. When Jonathan Edwards was a young man, he wrote down 70 resolutions for his life. And several of them had to do with numbering his days so that he might live a life of wisdom. Right? Consider resolution number 17. He said this, Resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. See, if this is how you live, you'll be able to die in the day when tragedy comes to your life. Because in your life, you're saying, I want to live today as if it's my last. Resolution 19 continues the theme. resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. He's talking not now of dying, but he's talking about seeing and hearing the last trumpet and Christ coming in all of his glory and, and Jonathan Edwards taken up to heaven. And he said, if I knew that was coming the last hour, I want to live today so as I wouldn't be ashamed or so that I, I would do the things today that I would do knowing even that I got one last hour of my life to live. And my exhortation to you, church family, is that you might number your days. Number your days, our days are few. Jonathan Edwards thought on his own death, but the death of others can do the job just as well. Charles Spurgeon tells a story what he did with his twin boys. He said, "I took my little boys a few years ago to a churchyard, a cemetery, in other words. We took a piece of tape, a yardstick, measuring tape somehow, and I told them to measure some of the little graves. Back in those days, the graves weren't so much in the ground. A lot of times were were just on top. You could measure them, see how long they were. And he said, I wanted them to learn practically how soon they might die. They found there were several which were shorter than they themselves were. Little kids that had had graves shorter than they were. He said, Ah, there are many who are taken away before they are your age, my young friends. And, why not you be so taken? It's early with you, but not too early for death to be even now pointing its darts at you. Do what it takes to think on death. Visit cemeteries. Go to funerals. Think of your own death. I mean, we don't like that. I mean, Do we? But it's healthy for you to get a biblical perspective on life. There's a wonderful way that going to a cemetery, going to a funeral has a way of sobering us up to the reality of the brevity of life. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2 says, It's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. In other words, it's better to go to a funeral than it is to a wedding. Why? Because that's the end of every man and the living take it to heart. When you go to a funeral and you gaze upon the corpse in the coffin... It's a visible reminder of where you're headed. And as you see this, it has an effect upon your heart. It helps you think of the end. And perhaps even it helps you think of the day when you're in the coffin and others are looking at you. Because that day, I'm telling you, friends, is a breath away. Man is few of days. And I simply say, are you ready to die? 150,000 died this past week. I don't know how many of them were ready to die. My responsibility to this flock is to seek to do whatever I could do to prepare you for that day. Are you ready to die? If anything, the tsunami teaches us, it ought to teach us that our lives could end soon, right? I, I, I thought of different scenarios that might come across your path this week a car wreck, maybe hit by a drunk driver. Maybe some kind of accident where you fall from a high height. Maybe something falling on you. Maybe some random shooting. Maybe some stroke. Maybe some nuclear meltdown in Byron. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just thinking. All of these are possibilities for your life. And are you ready to die? There's only going to be one issue that's going to matter on that day when you die. How are my sins dealt with? Because you're going to stand before God. And when you stand before God, it's going to be your sins which is the one issue in your life. It's really the most important question even for you to deal with now. Are your sins forgiven? Or will you be punished for your sins? And that's the Gospel of Christ, right? This is where there's hope in this sermon. It's not just a sermon about you know, glib and glob. There is hope here that in the gospel of Christ, that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, believe that He took your place on the cross, look to Him and what He's done, and hope and trust in Him. If you do, you'll be ready to die. As Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's your only hope. Flee to Christ. Look to Him. Constantly be looking to Him. Realize that in Him is your only hope to stand before God. Well, life is few of days. Let's turn our attention now to the second lesson we can learn from the tsunami. Life is full of trouble. Again, Job 14, verse 1 says, Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. I would venture to say that the suffering in Sri Lanka and Indonesia... And other countries who have been hit by the tsunami have only begun. Their sufferings are far from over. The survivors from the tsunami can only anticipate incredible difficulties in life to come. I've been thinking about what kind of difficulties they're going to face. I mean, currently right now they're facing the spread of disease from death all around them. But you know what? In a few weeks that's going to be passed. If so everything's cleaned up, bodies buried, that's just a few weeks of trouble. After that, the survivors are going to face the the trouble of rebuilding their communities. Everything they owned was gone. That'll take a decade or so. They're going to have trouble and labor and toil to build their community for the next decade. Constant reminder of the disaster that took place this week. We will long forget about it in a couple months. They will remember it eight years from now. In fact, furthermore, I think about the survivors right, facing the nagging questions of life, right? Why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Why did I lose my whole family? There are many people who lost their whole family. And for the rest of their lives, images and memories and smells will haunt them. Images will fill their mind. Of of, of the three-year-old that they were trying to hold and the current swept and they just couldn't hold any longer. and, And they watched their child never see their little boy again. And they'll think about that. Why couldn't I just hold on stronger? Why couldn't we have been another place? They'll remember the dead bodies floating in the water that they saw. They'll remember the mass graves that they helped to dig for many of their friends. The smell... Be deeply entrenched upon their mind. The rest of their days will be full of trouble. And you need to realize that what is taking place today in Southeast Asia is really a picture of what will come upon us. And I'm not saying America is destined for equal disaster in the near future. I'm not predicting the end of the world. I'm not saying that. I'm simply pointing out that our lives will be full of trouble as well. What took place in a global sense for them will take place in each of our lives. I guarantee it. It's inevitable. We live on a fallen earth. The whole creation groans. Romans 8.22 Our existence is filled with trouble and suffering. Jesus said that. In the world you will have tribulation. Especially as a member of the body of Christ. I turn over to Acts chapter 14. It's amazing here. Acts chapter 14. Paul... Barnabas had gone out, preached the gospel to these cities, kind of reached the end, and now they're coming back. Right? Just a couple weeks after their conversion. Right? He's coming back to speak with them about what life is going to be like. Verse 21, "...after he'd preached the gospel to that city Derby, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Antioch. He was strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith. These were new Christians. This was the advice given to new baby Christians. He was telling them, continue on, keep going, because through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. This is new Christians. He's saying, your life is going to be full of trouble, especially if you name the name of Christ. You go through the history of the Bible and God's children have always suffered greatly. Job is a great example, but he's one of many, many. Jacob suffered greatly. Joseph suffered greatly. Moses suffered greatly. Elijah. Jeremiah. John the Baptist. Jesus. Jesus suffered greatly. Peter. tradition says he hung up on a cross upside down. Stephen was stoned to death for his preaching. Paul. You want to live godly in Christ Jesus, you'll be persecuted. In this world you have tribulations. I mean, that's the picture of the world. And, and maybe today finds you without suffering at the moment. Maybe today you're saying, Steve, listen, I'm looking upon my life and I think things are going pretty well. I've got years ahead of me. My body's healthy. I'm not sick. I, I feel pretty good. In fact, I've got my, my video games, my cable television, and my friends. My job's going pretty well. I've got enough money to purchase what I need. And I have an abundance to purchase what I want. Well, if this is you, I just say, give it a few years. Just give it a few years. And your trouble will come. I guarantee you, it will. I mean, last time I checked, the going death rate is 100%. And when your body starts to decay, trouble will come. Trouble will come. And really the purpose of my message this morning is to help prepare you for that time. Because I love you and I want you to conquer through that time. Maybe that time is ten years from now. Maybe that time is this summer. Maybe it's next month. Maybe it's next week. Maybe it's tomorrow. And I'll just tell you, suffering is closer to you than you think. For those of you at prayer meeting this morning, you know that suffering is closer to you than you think. And with the uncertainty of when it will come, suffering is the test that you want to prepare for now. You don't know when it's going to come. Pop quiz tomorrow. Maybe it comes next month. You want to prepare now and be ready for it. Don't procrastinate. Start thinking about your trials and difficulties today. No, start thinking about them right now about the trials that are coming in your life full of troubles. Because in a day when the test comes, you're going to respond in one of two ways. You'll become bitter or you'll become better. I've seen it. I've seen people respond to trials in a resentful way that's only brought them to bitterness. I've seen people respond to trials in a right way that has brought them real and genuine and much happiness. And if you want to get bitter, if you want to get better rather than bitter, not to be confused with butter, if you want to get better, not bitter, two things you need to know. First is that God has a purpose. God has a purpose in your suffering. Certainly all suffering in the world is a result of sin, but if the promise of Romans 8.28 is true... Remember that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God who are called according to His purpose. If that is true, and it is, then there must be some good result that God will work through your suffering. God has a purpose in it. And you will find a tremendous comfort in knowing, believing, and trusting that God has brought this trouble into your life For a purpose. That's going to be the bedrock. When troubles come and trials come and sufferings come. The the bedrock that's going to keep you is the sovereign purpose of God. Turn over to Philippians chapter one. Philippians chapter one. We're going to look at verse 29. Right? Paul's writing to the believers in Christ. He wants to put before them God's plan and purpose for their life. This is the plan that God has for those who believe in Christ. Here it is, <clears throat> Philippians 1.29. For to you, Philippians, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. In other words, Paul's telling the Philippians that they believe in Christ because God has given them faith to believe. It's been granted to you to believe. He gives it to them to believe. But God's given them two things. He's given them to believe, and He's also given them to suffer. He's given them to suffer for the sake of Jesus. Isn't that what it says? Not only to you, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. In other words, God has afflicted them so that Christ would get the glory. I think that's what it means. For His sake. God has given them affliction... That they might glorify Christ. Now, there are many ways that this suffering can bring glory to Christ. In this particular instance of the Philippines, we don't know the exact details of how this was accomplished, but we do know how Paul's suffering illustrates this principle. Paul's own suffering accomplished this, right? Turn, look back at chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. When Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, <clears throat> Paul wasn't on his couch watching TV. Paul was in a cold, dark dungeon cell. And he said here in verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Because of Paul's imprisonment, the gospel went forth in ways that it would never have gone forth unless he had been afflicted with troubles and sufferings and trials. Verse 13 says how the gospel went forth within the prison. Uh, I trust that's Paul in prison sharing the gospel with the guards and the others. I think that's what verse 13 says. And verse 14 says the gospel went forth outside of the prison. And how did it do that? It did that when when people heard that Paul was in prison suffering for the gospel. They were emboldened to then speak of the gospel to others. In fact, if you look carefully here, it's even the suffering that caused... There's a causal relationship here. It's the suffering that moved the believers to respond in boldness, right? Look what it says. Most of the brethren... Trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. It's because of his imprisonment that the brethren trusted in the Lord and were far more bold to go forth and preach it. God's purpose for the sufferings of Paul's life was to increase the spread of the gospel. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. Maybe bad for Paul at the time. When you look at eternity, uh, it's a great thing. Now, several of us men at Rock Valley Bible Church are going to start today reading this book, *To the Golden Shore*, and it tells the life of Adoniram Judson. I still have a few copies of this. If you want to be involved in that, John Piper was talking about this book, really talking about the life of Adoniram Judson, and listen to what he said. He said, more and more, I am persuaded from Scripture and from the history of missions that God's design for the evangelization of the world and the consummation of His purposes includes the suffering of His ministers and missionaries. Suffering of ministers and missionaries. But then he goes, to put it more plainly and specifically, God designs that the suffering of His ministers and missionaries is the one essential means in the joyful triumph of the spread of the gospel among the peoples of the world. It's the means. The suffering of God's people is the means through which God spreads the gospel. And nowhere is it more clear here than in Philippians chapter 1. It was Paul's imprisonment that was the means by which the gospel was spread it was because of his imprisonment. And I say this because the world is not particularly impressed with us Christians when things are going well. I mean, when we're healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, the world looks at us and says, I would be happy too if I had health and wealth and prosperity. That doesn't help help progress the gospel. Do you know what helps progress the gospel? You know when the world is very impressed? When we suffer with joy. When things are bad for us and troubles come and we conquer delightfully through it, then the world says, things are going bad for you. Why are you joyful? It's at that point, you remember in 2 Peter? Always be ready to give a defense for the hope of the gospel that lies within you. How many of you have ever had anybody ask you, What's what's the hope of your joy? Some. It could be, perhaps, that trials haven't come on your life to demonstrate that your joy is extra-worldly. It's just the trials and troubles that come that give opportunity for the gospel to go forth. Right? Right? It's the point when people notice that we can speak clearly and plainly of a heavenly joy that far surpasses the pleasures that we have here on earth. Right? We can speak of the heavenly city that we're looking for, not these current possessions. That's why those right, Hebrews to which the writer of the Hebrews wrote, they, they gladly left their possessions, joyfully because they knew their heavenly city was. A, they knew that their enduring possession was a heavenly city. See, it's when we're afflicted that we have great opportunity to give testimony or love for Jesus. It was a case of Paul's imprisonment. The sufferings in prison were the means through which Paul and others were able to spread the Gospel in ways in which if he never was in prison, that wouldn't take place. And when suffering comes upon God's people, how easy is it for us to look inward and try to solve our problems rather than looking out of ourselves seek to discern the purpose of God in our sufferings and then tell it to others, right? It may just be that your suffering or your trouble is the means by which God will convert others. If you knew that by your troubles and your suffering that He would use that circumstance to give you an opportunity for the gospel, would would bring others to Christ, would you willingly suffer? Paul said in Romans chapter 9 or 10, I forget which one, he said, I wish I could be in hell for the sake of my brothers. Can You say, oh God, afflict me for the sake of the gospel. Afflict me for the sake of bringing the good news of Christ to others. Can you say that? I mean, think about, think about the church in Philippi, okay? It, were the church in Philippi to write a history of, of how their church started and how it went? I think that they would point to the imprisonment of Paul as a key means that God used to build the church. Do you remember what happened? Paul and Silas were in prison, suffering unjustly for the gospel. And what were they doing in prison, kids? They were singing. Now, is that strange? I think that would have drawn a lot of attention to themselves. I mean, prison isn't a joyful place for most people. And so I think as they were singing, the, the prisoners... And certainly the jailer were looking at who are these guys? How can they have this joy amidst? They're in prison, and their prison then is not like prison today. It's cold and dark and hard. It's terrible, and they're singing praise to God. And then God uses a natural disaster. Maybe maybe get rid of that word. He used a disaster. He used a, a calamity. He used an earthquake. If this had been at sea, it would have been a tsunami. He used an earthquake, right, to open the prison doors and to get out. It gave Paul and Silas an opportunity, right, to demonstrate further unusual behavior. They could have escaped, but they chose to stay. And the Philippian jailer must have been just confused. You guys live differently than the, the people I had in jail a week ago. Boy, if that dungeon door was open, they would have been out of there in a second, but you're here. What is different? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? To see how God used affliction of imprisonment and a disaster to bring about the conversion of the Philippian jailer for he believed and his whole household believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed through the suffering of the saints. When suffering comes, God has a purpose. It may be for your life. It may be for the life of others. Here's my second point. God has a purpose and I've, I've mingled this quite a bit. So, it, but you have opportunities. When suffering comes, you have opportunities. When suffering comes, really, it's going to give you great opportunities you've never had before. You can learn about God in ways you've never known God before. It will give you opportunities to give glory to God in ways you've never been able to do before. It will give you ability to witness for God in ways you've never had before to help others in similar circumstances. Right? I mean, I think about... How you can give glory to God. Wasn't that the dilemma between Satan and God? Oh, yeah, Job worships you because things are well. Yeah, but just strike him down and he'll curse you. But when Job didn't curse God, and when he gave God glory, that was more glory even than he had before because not only did Job worship God out of his wealth and prosperity, but he worshiped him in poverty and distress and great disaster. And that gave great glory to God. I think about opportunities you have to to learn about God. The hymn writer William Williams, who wrote, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, testified that he had gained on his deathbed more knowledge of himself and more knowledge of the goodness of God than during the previous 40 years of his life. The suffering as a way of, of, of causing us to depend in greater ways upon God. And, and on his deathbed, he learned way more of the goodness of God than he had in 40 years. And he was a hymn writer. Like he was probably a godly man, meditating much upon God. Now, this is contrary to what even much Christianity is about. Much Christianity would paint the sufferings that we endure in this life as the most dreaded thing which needs to be avoided at all costs. They think that God only wants for you health, wealth, and prosperity. And that's what God is trying to give you in all abundance. Charles Spurgeon put it well. Years before the health, wealth, prosperity movement, he said, health is set before us as if it were the great thing to be desired above all other things. Is it so? I venture to say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is health, with the exception of sickness, Sickness has been frequently been of more use to the saints of God than health has. I would not wish for any man a long time of sickness and pain. But a twist now and then one might almost ask for him. A sick wife, a newly made grave, poverty, slander, sinking of spirit, might teach us lessons nowhere else to be learned so well. Trials drive us to the realities of religion. That's my point. You have opportunities in your suffering that you wouldn't have apart from your suffering. In 2 Corinthians 12, it was a thorn in the flesh that gave Paul the opportunity to trust Christ, trust Christ in ways that he'd never had before. My grace is sufficient for you. Oh, if, if your grace is sufficient, I'm going to trust that. And he trusted in the grace of Christ as more than ever before. And I've already talked about the ways that troubles and difficulties give you a platform to speak with others about God. You know, we have our newest issue, the Food for the Flock, out this this week. It's there on the back. I tell you about this late so you don't read it during my sermon. And um, I think about, you know, we've been, I don't know, this is probably our 15th Food for the Flock, and this is to edify you and encourage you. Do you know which are the favorite issues that I've worked to put out on this? There are two issues that in my mind stand far above all the others. They're not ones I've written. They're ones that uh, Carol and Ken Pearson have written. And they're ones that uh, Phil and Karen Gusky have written. Carol and Mandy spoke about their struggles with Carol's breast cancer and just how victorious they were through that in trusting God with the difficulties that came upon their life. I was like so encouraged by that. And Karen and Phil wrote about Karen struggled with Guillain-Barre syndrome, right? For those of you who don't know, and, you know, it's, it, a paralysis starts coming up from her extremities, her fingers and her toes and upper legs, and kind of came up and she like, couldn't walk for weeks. And yet God was faithful through that. Really, she gave great testimony of the joy she found in her health difficulties. And, and those are opportunities that come only because of the suffering. If the suffering had never come... The platform would never have been there to proclaim. So when sufferings come, recognize the purpose of God and the opportunities that you have. I'm going to close with one final illustration. And really, it all comes down to this. You can live life one of two ways. You can live life like playing dodgeball. What what's that about? You've seen kids play dodgeball? If you haven't, just go out, out there into the gym afterwards. Kids are playing dodgeball today? Yes, always play dodgeball, all right? Now what's the object in dodgeball? Your eyes are wide open, right? You're looking for that, that missile coming at you and you're you're trying to dodge it and you're trying to get out of the way of it, right? You're trying to move. And you will do everything possible so that ball doesn't hit you. In life, many people play dodgeball as well they got their eyes wide open to all the dangers around them, right? And a sickness is is coming and they try to avert it and they try to dodge, right? And they try to miss the catastrophes of life and whew, that was close, miss that one, right? And they just go through life trying to dodge all of the potential sufferings and troubles that they're going to have. You can live life that way. I think it'll just lead to a fearful way of living. And you know when God plays dodgeball? He's pretty good. He doesn't miss. When he's got his ball in hand... and determines that you're going to be sick... he's going to get you, Luke. Right? When he determines a car crash is going to come... he's going to get you, Jed. And he, no dodging God's dodgeball... And, and so you're going to get hit anyway. It's a terrible way to live. The other way to live... you can play Duck, Duck, Goose. You ever seen kids play Duck, Duck, Goose? Right? They, they sit around the circle... And a kid goes around playing duck, 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 duck. And when they say goose, yeah, get up and run around the circle and try to catch the kid, right? And uh, oftentimes, you ever seen a, a child sitting there on, on the ground and they got their leg, they're, they're kind of squatting like this, getting all ready to go. They're getting ready to go, and, and maybe they maybe call goose, and maybe they can go. This is for posterity, I guess. Maybe I can just do this. But they're all set, and they're all ready to go. And and just like in dodgeball, you know, in some sense, when balls are thrown, you're probably not going to be hit. Sooner or later, you're going to get get hit. But but in duck, duck, goose, probably they're going to say duck, and probably it's not going to be there. But you're ready, just in case they say goose. And when they say goose, you are ready to go, because you know that God has a purpose for your life, God has a purpose in your sufferings, and that you're going to have great opportunity. And sometimes even when it passes you by... What do kids do? You can play dodgeball with your life, or you can play duck duck goose. One is fearful of everything, one is active and ready to pounce when the sufferings come. Well, man is born of a woman, man who is born of a woman is full of days, few of days, and full of trouble. Are you going to run from these realities? Or will you be prepared for the day when the tsunami hits your life? Let's pray. Lord, I know of the hardness of this message. And I know I have preached it to myself first. And I know that when sufferings and troubles and persecutions come... I'll probably be the first in line from a persecuted for Christ's sake perspective. Yet from a bodily perspective, Lord, I would pray, even as I was thinking this week of being 37 years old and looking at years to come before major bodily difficulties perhaps come upon me. And God, I would pray that You would stir in my mind and my heart, God, a... An imminence and expectancy, God, to know that my life is very short. And that 70 or 80 years are but nothing in your sight. They vanish away like a sigh. As the hymn writer says, that the only things done for Christ on this earth will last. So we have only one life to live and will will soon be past. And Lord would pray that you would stir in my soul a heart and a passion to pursue Christ with all of my passions and all of my desires, God, to find in Him complete satisfaction. And I, and I do pray also for these dear people, uh, this congregation, Rock Valley Bible Church, whom I love. I would pray that as, as troubles come upon us, I pray that You would give us, more than anything, a right response to them. I would pray that today we would begin our, our training for the day the test comes, that indeed we would be better and that we would not be bitter. You have spared us in our country of the tsunami and the national disaster. And yet, God, it's Your mere pleasure that withholds the next one from us. I pray that we would see Your tremendous mercy, that all we have is by Your mercy, and all we have is by Your grace. God, may we indeed rejoice in Your loving kindness to us, and entrust ourselves to Christ as the only one who can help us out of this dark, deep, fallen world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.